Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. As Russian forces retreated from areas around Kyiv in recent days, the whole world became aware of the scope of Russian atrocity crimes committed in areas under their control. Meanwhile, the brutal bombardment of cities like Mariupol in the south of Ukraine continues. And as I'm recording this on Friday, April 8th, there is word that a Russian missile struck a crowded train station in the eastern city of Kramatorsk, which was crammed with civilians seeking to flee that region ahead of a Russian military advance. As my guest today, Dr. Liana Fix explains, these apparent war crimes will meaningfully impact both the trajectory of the conflict and any progress towards some sort of partial truce or ceasefire. Liana Fix is the program director of the International Affairs Department at the Korber Foundation, which is a Berlin-based think tank. She is the co-author, along with Michael Kimmage, of a recent piece in Foreign Affairs that outlines the possible contours of a provisional cessation of hostilities, But as she explains, the fact of Russian atrocity crimes challenges the logic of any possible diplomatic solution to this crisis. It was good to catch up again with Liana Fix about the conflict in Ukraine. And this conversation does a good job of explaining how very recent events in Ukraine are impacting the trajectory of the conflict and any pathways towards a peace. And just one note before we start, I am starting again to record episodes live via Twitter spaces. This one was not recorded live, but uh, future episodes you will hear in this show will be. Uh, I really like recording episodes live because it gives me an opportunity to hear from you, the listener, and what questions uh, are on your mind towards the guests that I host. It's a interactive uh, opportunity, which is kind of rare in, in podcasting. So it's a great opportunity if you want to be part of the show. Simply follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to be alerted of when these episodes are being recorded live. Otherwise, you know, no need to participate live. Uh, every episode is recorded as a podcast and sent directly to whatever device you're listening to me now. Thank you. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Liana Fix. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. As we speak, Russian forces have withdrawn from areas around Kyiv, suggesting that Putin's you know, initial aim of overthrowing the Ukrainian government and installing a compliant puppet regime is not achievable. 
So what do the latest troop movements and other developments on the ground right now suggest to you about how Putin may recalibrate his war aims at this point? Yes, I think we should um, not be too um, optimistic about what exactly this means for Russia's war aims. I mean, first of all, it is certainly uh, a great um, it is a great development as it shows that um, Ukraine's resistance has resulted in Russian withdrawal. So this is really a incredible achievement on the Ukrainian side and no one would have expected after the first days of the war. So this is really something where we can say this is evidence that Ukraine's resistance, Western weapon deliveries do help um, and it makes sense to continue support Ukraine in, in its resistance. But sort of the other side of the argument would be to say, well, look, this is Russia's weakness right now. Um, and uh, Ukraine is on a safe path, on a safe way to victory. And I think we should be careful not to become too war optimistic here. I mean, in the same way as the Kremlin has been a war, a war optimistic before the outbreak of the war, we should remain very sober in our assessment because it is clear that Russia regroups, that Russia tries to consolidate its forces and to focus those on the south and on the east. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that um, Ukraine is already within the reach of, of victory. Uh, and what is especially troublesome is um, the news of the atrocities coming out from villages uh, around Kiev, but also reports about um, uh, possibly the same kind of atrocities taking place in Mariupol and other areas under Russian occupation, because it means that. Um, Russian occupation is not just sort of a political question in terms of who is the mayor of a village um, and who is he loyal to, but it really is a question about the safety of Ukrainians living on this territory. Um, and it makes the President Zelensky's negotiation position, if negotiations with Russia in any uh, can be taken serious in any way, but if the Ukrainians want to trying to go on with it, they definitely should. It makes it more complicated because any kind of ideas about freezing of territorial um, statuses um, will imply the risk of um, atrocities committed mm. against the Ukrainian population. So, so you're saying the strategic logic of these atrocities committed against civilians by the Russian forces serves to put pressure on Zelensky when it might come to questions around negotiating territorial concessions? I think the the message from these atrocities has different, I mean, has, has a couple of dimensions. I mean, the first dimension is certainly that this is a Russian part of Russia's way of warfare that we've already seen in Chechnya and in Syria. So this is nothing new. The second dimension is that it is meant to send a signal and to break resistance um, in Ukraine and in Ukrainian villages. Um, and the third dimension to it is um, uh, to um, uh, to sort of underline uh, how sort of it is a very cruel and very brutal translation of the rhetoric and the ideology coming from Moscow, which says that uh, Ukraine has to be liberated from Nazism. And now the propaganda also says that 
Nazism has sort of, in quotation marks, obviously for my side, has gone deeper and the Ukrainian population needs to be liberated and purged. And this is tra basically translated by Russian soldiers on the ground. So the message here by these atrocities, I mean, first of all, it is just part of Russia's way of warfare. It is to uh, intimidate the population, to break resistance. And at the same time, it is also to message um, towards Kiev, look, look what we are capable of. We will not back down. We will use all methods available to achieve our aims. As we speak, there are multiple reports that you know Russian forces are now seeking more deliberately to wage an attack to maintain control over parts of eastern Ukraine, uh, you know, parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, that they were not able to capture back in 2014. Uh, what does this suggest to you about the sort of territorial ambitions of Russian forces in Ukraine right now? I think the territorial ambitions of Russia at the beginning have been um, very wide. So at the beginning, the idea was um, to... Uh, Yeah, to conduct a shock and awe campaign that in, in all parts of Ukraine. And I think this was to the surprise of many observers who always thought, well, if Russia continues, um, they would try first to fight in Donetsk and in Luhansk to, um, uh, to, to get control over the territory within the administrative boundaries of Donetsk and Luhansk, because those territories under control by the separatists were just a small part of sort of the administration administrative boundaries. Um, but the war, sort of the beginning of the war, demonstrated that Russia's ambitions really covered the entirety of Ukraine, and we still see it right now with attacks on Lviv and other cities also in the western part of Ukraine. What the sort of um, regrouping now to the east and south means is basically the um, acknowledgement that Russia's forces have militarily been been overstretched, um, and uh, the the this does not mean that Russia's political aims are limited to Donetsk and Luhansk, because then they would not have had to start this war at all if it's really about Donetsk and Luhansk. They could have started it from the beginning in eastern Ukraine, but it is more of a um, war change of sort of the the approach to the war that Russia has more possibilities now in the east and in the south to gain territory and to, um, to, to stick to that territory and from there continue its broader, uh, its broader aims um, towards, um, towards Ukraine. So I don't think it is a change of political aims. The political aim still remains to have Ukraine under control politically, economically, militarily, But it is a change of, of approach, seeing that Russia has been quite weak in the north um, and uh, now tries to establish a base in the east and in the south. Okay, so, so do you not believe it's the case then that, you know, having suffered this defeat from taking Kiev over the last several weeks, that Russia has recalibrated its political aims from the overthrow of the Zelensky government to something different? I think the uh, the overthrow of the Zelensky government was part of the broader aim to get Ukraine under control. Um, and uh, if that is dropped for the moment, it does not mean that sort of the overall aim of exerting control over Ukraine has changed. 
Um, and um, having ground in the east and the south, basically would Russia give the basis to, at some point, if Ukraine is not able to fight Russia back in the east and in the south, it gives Russia the opportunity to stay there, to pause, to regroup, and then at some point later in the future to try another attack on other parts of Ukraine. And we we still see attacks in, in, in the west of Ukraine. So it's not that Russia has... Uh, dropped all um, all military means or all military actions towards other parts of Ukraine. So there was a significant risk that Russia would try again to finish the business that they started at a moment when Ukraine is in a weaker position, which again makes it so difficult for, for Zelensky to, to negotiate with the Russian side if they negotiate at all in good faith. Um, because uh, as long as um, there are no security guarantees from the Western side, he will always be on his own in preventing that Russia just tries to attack again in a couple of weeks or months and tries to finish the business. So given this sort of very messy situation on the ground right now, and also given the fact that Ukraine is not itself going to achieve its maximalist aims of evicting Russian troops from all of Ukrainian territory. You know, what opportunities might exist, if at all, for like a messy sort of provisional peace or, or a messy uh, peace agreement of some sort or a cessation of hostilities of some sort? Yeah, a provisional peace agreement would mean that um, uh, there would have to be concessions made um, from uh, from both sides in terms of Russia would need to make concessions in its uh, ambitions um, and Ukraine probably also concession when it comes to NATO membership. That's something uh, Zelensky has already signaled that he would be, that he would accept um, dropping the um, ambition for NATO membership from Ukraine's constitution um, and the other part would be to to freeze um, uh, contested uh, territories such as Crimea um, for a 50-year negotiation period. That was one of the suggestions from the Ukrainian side. Um, that was before the pictures of the atrocities that we've seen right now. Um, so the and 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 again from uh, from a Russian perspective, um, it. Uh, it, 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 it further strengthens doubts to what extent Russia is serious about this, because if they were serious about negotiations, they now basically, um, uh, with the, the atrocities happening there, basically are backfiring because it does not bring um, it closer to uh, a negotiated, negotiated solution. And this provisional piece needs to be in a situation where Ukraine is in a relatively strong position because part of these negotiations are from the Ukrainian side, security guarantees from the West. And as long as the West does not want to give clear military security guarantees, so far we have read some statements about political guarantees, possibly after a ceasefire. So it's not, um, the West does not want to become a military actor there. And as long as this is the case, Ukraine needs a negotiated outcome that allows it to continue to defend itself, to keep its military military and its army, and to continue to receive weapon deliveries from the West so that it does not end up in a weaker situation in case Russia tries again to attack in, in the future. 
Can I maybe just probe you a little further on this idea of security guarantees? Because, you know, as you said now, it does not seem likely that there is any kind of provisional peace or ceasefire anytime in the near future. But if there is to be one, it will have to include from Ukraine's perspective, security guarantees from presumably, you know, the West, what does that mean in, in practice or what might that look like in practice? And from the Ukrainian side, it would definitely mean that uh, the West would underwrite an agreement and guarantee an agreement between Ukraine and Russia, which would mean that in case Russia violates this agreement, those guarantors would have to be willing to engage militarily to defend Ukraine and to defend the agreement. That is sort of the basic definition of a security guarantee. But that comes relatively close almost to Article 5 guarantees that are given to NATO members. And the discussion right now is from those countries that have signaled that they are thinking about security guarantees, as Berlin has done, that those security guarantees should be below Article 5, so less than Article 5 guarantees to Ukraine because, as I said, the West does not want to become a military actor, but more than those Budapest assurances from the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, where Ukraine gave up um, nuclear weapons from Soviet times, but um, for its territorial integrity and the guarantees back then, including the UK, they um, have not been able to um, to enforce the agreement. So the the magic formula here is less than Article 5, more than the Budapest Memorandum. But how this can look like in practice and whether less than Article 5 will be sufficient to deter Russia from trying again, that's a very, very big question mark at the moment. Um, And um, hopefully there's creative thinking going on on this question, how exactly it could look like. But from the Ukrainian side, they would definitely want security guarantees that involve a military component knowing very well the reluctance of Western states to engage militarily. And from a, a Russian perspective, like what might some elements of like an unsatisfactory cessation of hostilities look like, if not in the near term, which it obviously does not seem like this is going to happen in the near term, but presumably, you know, at, at, at some point, it, it, it seems, you know, based on what we've seen so far, that this conflict is, you know, proceeding to a stalemate sort of situation. Um, what what might Russia accept? Yeah, that's perhaps the most difficult question here because Russia at the moment, sort of the decision, who, who is Russia at the moment? At the moment, Russia is the decision-making, um, the small decision-making circle around the Russian president. And the Russian president is very determined that his aim is a historical unity between Ukrainians and Russians, which translates into Ukraine has no right to exist as an independent state. Um, So uh, what would certainly be something that Moscow would react to is that significant military losses would have to be acknowledged in some regard and could lead to at least the very practical realization that Um, both from an economic perspective and from a military perspective, um, continuing the war the way Russia does right now um, leads into into a 
cul de sac. Um, but the question really is to what extent does the Russian president get objective and neutral information on the state of the war um, and on the developments on the ground and um, how much pressure is needed. And this comes back to the question of how, what kind of weapon deliveries should Western states give Ukraine, but also uh, the question of energy sanctions towards Russia, because this is the lifeline that Russia lives on right now um, uh, and which uh, perhaps not directly but most definitely indirectly supports its war in Ukraine. And at least thus far, Putin seems to believe, uh, and it's, it's, it's true thus far, that his forces can continue to commit atrocity crimes, you know, the, the murder of, of civilians we saw in places around Kiev, and then just this morning waking up to news of uh, a missile attack on a crowded civilian train station in eastern Ukraine, that, you know, these war crimes and crimes against humanity can continue to be committed uh, while simultaneously uh, trading, you know, gas for, for euros. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the lessons that Russia, that Russia has drawn from past wars. Um, uh, it's, it has analyzed very closely how the West reacted to Russian atrocities committed in Syria, how the West reacted to Russia's first steps in eastern Ukraine and to Crimea, but also how the West reacted to Chechnya. So it's not, um, uh, it's not very difficult to read sort of the calculus um, and the cost-benefit calculus on, on the Western side and to make assumptions on it. But what the Kremlin always um, underestimates is, from uh, a Moscow perspective, the whole idea of Western values and a value set is just not something that Moscow understands, because it just assumes that every actor acts the same way it does, and that public outcry, public opinion, um, values are some, something which is just... Um, yeah, just uh, just just fake and doesn't really exist. That every country is just concerned about its very hardcore interests, and this is a crucial miscalculation. Um, and it's already right now a miscalculation because some of the public outcry over the war in Ukraine has increased the pressure on Western policymaking to act in a decisive way. So while at the same time Moscow thinks it has understood the West and it can continue to commit atrocities, and the West will always want to continue the energy relationship because it's just, just about its economic interest, uh, Moscow cannot understand that there is actually uh, public opinion in Western countries that may have an influence on policymaking and are very much driven by deep-held values. I mean, I, I know that you are an historian and an expert on German politics. Is there like a, a threshold in which the German public might no longer tolerate continued scenes of atrocity uh, and might demand of their policymakers that they enact energy sanctions, which, of course, in turn would cause hardship on, on Germans themselves and, and, and others throughout Europe. I mean, is, is that a, is there a threshold uh, that might be reached? Perhaps it's not a very sort of clear cut threshold that we can say, oh, an atrocity on the scale of uh, um, that, that we see now on a bigger scale will lead to something. So it's always very difficult to say what, what, what triggers societies and public reaction. But we do see also in public opinion 
um, a gradual shift in German public opinion. So there's a huge support for weapon deliveries towards Ukraine. Um, there's also increasingly support for offensive weapon deliveries. And there's also a feeling in German society that Germany is not doing enough to support Ukraine. Um, so at the moment, uh, German public opinion is ahead of its policymakers. And this can and will play a role in, 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 change of, in change of positions. But could you foresee a situation in which the German population supports uh, a policy of restricting energy imports from Russia, even though that might sharply increase their own energy costs? I mean, there's a question, this is very much a question of policymaking. So there's... Um, uh, The, the, uh, and a statecraft, a state has all available means, and we've seen this in the corona pandemic, to um, to soften the impact of, um, uh, of of economic hardship on its population. And there are many creative instruments and ways how you can think about this and how this has been done in the past, where the uh, state basically tried to uh, support jobs um, to... Uh, make the impact on those in need um, less severe. So it is really a question of policymaking. I think the it, it's also not a question of an immediate exit from both oil and gas starting tomorrow, but it's a question about um, thinking creatively how we can start now and in a timeline which is not only uh, uh, a timeline, an inward-looking timeline on looking at Germany's economy and Europe's economy, but it's also a timeline that can actually help Ukraine. You know, it's interesting. I came into this conversation thinking we'd spend, you know, a lot of time discussing, you know, possible contours of an unsatisfactory peace agreement <laughs> between Ukraine and, and Russia. But the fact of these atrocity crimes, these crimes against humanity that have been broadcast across screens, you know, around the world and experienced so brutally inside Ukraine has seemingly sort of fundamentally changed the, the politics of this conflict as well. I mean, it certainly has made it more difficult because, and, and much more complicated um, because again, if the, the essence of a state is to protect its citizens and a negotiated outcome would mean that large parts of uh, Ukrainian population are under Russian control um, with those atrocities taking place in many areas under Russian control, it just is a um, uh, it, it, it just makes it incredibly more complicated. Um, and again, this is uh, something where Russia's behavior has again, uh, at least from our perspective, um, made any uh, diplomatic solutions uh, much more difficult. Well, Liana, thank you so much for your time. This is very thank helpful you. as always. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Liana Fix for her time once again. This is a very helpful conversation. And yeah, as I mentioned at the outset, I intended uh, this conversation to kind of focus on the contours of a possible diplomatic solution, which was the focus of her piece with uh, Michael Kimmage, but uh, recent events, the revelation of such atrocity crimes in areas around Kiev have changed all that. And so again, I appreciate her time. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Bye.